Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to take a look at our institutions of higher education, our colleges and universities. And to do that, we've got a terrific expert guest to help us. He's Jeff Salingo. Jeff has written about higher education for more than two decades and is a New York Times bestselling author of three books. His latest book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions, was published in September 2020 and was named an Editor's Choice by the New York Times Book Review. A regular contributor to The Atlantic, Jeff is a special advisor for innovation and professor of practice at Arizona State University. He also co-hosts the podcast, Future You. Previously, Jeff was the top editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education, where he worked for 16 years in a variety of reporting and editing roles. His work has been honored with awards from the Education Writers Association, Society of Professional Journalists, and the Associated Press. Before we get to Jeff, I wanted to briefly remind you to contact my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com, if you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode of Looking Forward, and if you have any ideas for topics we might want to cover in future episodes. Jeff, welcome to Looking Forward. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff, I know that for many years you've been focused on higher education as a researcher, you're a professor, consultant, media personality. What was it that got you so deeply interested and involved in higher education? Was it something that you studied at Ithaca where you went to college? Was it some personal experience, maybe serendipity or perhaps something else? So when I was at Ithaca, I was editor of the student newspaper. And as a result, I just became really involved in writing about and covering the college itself. And then in between the junior year and senior year of college, I interned at U.S. News and World Report on the America's Best Colleges issue. And because of that, I really got to see kind of the full view of American higher education. And it really is a business. Um, and it's an industry. It's a sector of the economy that I don't think people realize, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, millions of people uh, employed by it. And so I started to see it as a sector of the economy that you can cover just like you cover transportation or retail or politics or national security. And in some ways, it's all tied up in all of those things, given its critical importance to the future of the country and future of the world. So your interest actually started way back at Ithaca. It did. Wow. Well, that's a little different from some of the experts I've spoken with who sort of zigzag their way into it. And I think that was excellent insight that you had when you were at Ithaca about yeah, that. And, because... you know, right. And I, I guess I should say that, yeah, I zigzagged a little bit after Ithaca. You know, I went, I, I worked in Arizona and North Carolina covering technology for a newspaper in Arizona and then the environment for a newspaper in Wilmington, North Carolina. But only two years later, I ended up at the Chronicle of Higher Education where I worked for 16 years in a variety of roles covering just higher education. So it was pretty well set pretty early on. 
Yes. And what's fascinating about this to me, Jeff, is that it seems to me, and we'll probably dig deeper into this as we go along, that only in recent years, and certainly now with COVID, have people been looking at colleges and universities as a business. For me, it was always going to a beautiful campus to visit, which I still love to do, but obviously can't do right now. So again, it was excellent, I think, on your part that you were seeing this way back when. Now, having said that, Jeff, looking forward focuses on the future, but to do that, we first have to look a little bit backwards. So can you please share with our audience your perspectives on what have been some of the key changes that have occurred in higher education over the past few decades? And we're talking about up to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic here in the U.S., so roughly speaking, up until about March. So I'm going to focus, Jeff, on, on admissions in particular, because to be honest with you, you talk about all the changes in higher education would probably take the next five days okay. uh, to talk about that. So my book is, is focused on, on college admissions. So I'm going to talk about big changes that I think have occurred primarily since the parents of today's high school students apply to college themselves. And I think if you talk to any parent of a teenager today, they will talk about how different the whole college admissions process is from when they applied, say, in the late 80s, early 1990s. And they always say, well, I'll, I would never get into the, co you know, the college I went to, my alma mater. And I think there are three big changes that happened in admissions uh, since then. One is essentially what I call the, the nationalization, in some ways, the internationalization of higher education. So and we cannot underestimate the impact, for example, that uh, low-cost travel had on admissions. And even we're talking to each other right now by Zoom, uh, FaceTime, all these other things that made going away to college so much closer. Uh, so, you know, students back in the 80s, if you went from Massachusetts to California, that was a far distance. And, you know, it was hard to get home. Uh, there were only so many airlines. It was expensive. You couldn't do what we're doing right now, talking face-to-face. -face. You would have to call on a payphone. Again, very expensive. The changes in travel and in communications, I think, really made colleges seem so much closer. And as a result now, students in Boston, instead of just applying to colleges in the Northeast or maybe the Mid-Atlantic, now would apply to colleges everywhere, including the Sun Belt. And so mm. we started to see colleges that mostly recruited, elite colleges even, that mostly recruited from the East Coast or the Northeast, now become much more national and international. And as a result, the applicant pools changed. The Common App also changed, meaning the Common App has always been around this idea of a common application to apply for college. But the birth of the internet made it so much easier to apply for college. I don't know what it was like when you applied, uh, but you know you would... I had to apply using a typewriter and I didn't want yeah. to apply to more than three colleges as a result. Yeah. Now you could apply using the common app and really press a button and apply to five or six colleges all at the same time. And the third big change I think in the last 40 years is really what I talk about in the book is this scarcity argument. We think that opportunity today is scarce, uh, particularly for our children. And as a result, we want to do everything in our power to make sure that they have the opportunities to end up on the right side of the economic dividing line. And we think sending them to the most selective college possible is the way that they end up on the right side of the economic divide. So those are the three big changes that I've seen that led us up to this point of, of COVID around college admissions in particular. 
It's a great synopsis and zeroing in on that was a good idea. Just to piggyback off that and ask you another question, Jeff. What about the SAT and ACT and all? Have they changed? Because when I went to school, that was like the be all and the end all. I remember thinking, I'm not even going to apply to some schools because my SAT scores, they're not going to make the grade. Is it tougher? Are the tests tougher? Are the gradients tougher in terms of who can get in? They have to have a 1500 or whatever the scores are these days. Has that changed much, Jeff? Uh, the testing has, has changed in, in a couple of ways. First of all, again, the frequency of the testing. I, again, I don't know what it was like when you took the SAT or the ACT, but you'd probably take it once or twice and that's it. Yes. Now you can take it multiple times because schools allow you to what's called super score. They allow you to take your two best scores which schools have always done, but now the elites even allow you to do that. And so as a result, students take the test more often to try to score uh, better. But the other big change has actually been on the other side of the coin, and that's this idea of test optional. So more than 1,200 schools, even before COVID, were test optional, meaning you didn't have to submit test scores to get in. And now since COVID, another 500 schools have gone test optional. So we're actually seeing a big movement actually away from testing because of COVID. That's fascinating. I did also want to add, this is just me personally, Jeff. I finished college and I thought about going for a master's. And I will tell you, one of the things that prevented me from going for a master's is I didn't feel like taking the GREs. <laughs> I, I, seriously, I just didn't feel like going through that again. Anyway, moving, moving ahead now. So in your opinion, again, we're still talking pre-COVID, Jeff. What have been some of the biggest mistakes colleges and universities have made over the past few decades? You started with the 80s, for example. And conversely, what have they gotten right? Well, probably one of the biggest mistakes is they got used to discounting tuition. They become more like Macy's using coupons to try to get you into the store rather than think about what is the real cost of our education and what should we be charging students. So starting really in the 70s and 80s because of the impact of enrollment management, where, which was this idea of just like they're trying to get butts and seats on a plane, colleges were trying to do the same thing, getting butts and seats. And so they would give you a discount and I would pay full price because they knew I would yield, I would show up even paying full price. And the only way you would show up is if I gave you a discount. But then they got too used to it. And now at most colleges, you, you have 95, close to 100% of students who are not paying full price. So tuition doesn't even matter anymore. Mm. And the value goes down, right? So what do we think of a, a Macy's, which is constantly discounting to get you in the store? And then today I was out walking about, and I don't live that far from an Apple store here in Maryland, and the people were around the corner lined up to get the new iPhone. Right. So because they think that even though it's expensive, they think it's valuable. And I think that's the biggest mistake that higher education has made over the last 40 years is they forgot their value proposition. Mm. And, 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 and we have now a have and have nots where some schools are able to charge whatever they want. Other schools aren't. That's what they didn't get right. What they got right, I think, is an understanding that their market was bigger than just a couple of high schools that always sent students to them, uh, that it was just 18 to 24-year-olds who wanted to go to campus full-time uh, on campus. We're now seeing a much more diverse student body in higher education, largely around age, to be honest with you, right? We used to think of adults as adult education and 
continuing education as something somebody else did. But yeah. now you're starting to see, we, we know that the amount of knowledge to keep up in the world is, is incredible these days. And we're starting to see colleges really rethink their whole business model and really rethink their customer model to figure out who needs to come in. And they're increasingly getting more adults to do that. And, you know, just to go back to what you said earlier, Jeff, it also sounds like they're realizing that their market is not just local. They can have people coming if they're in Florida or they can come from Maine if they're in California. They can come from New York. That's another one, right? Their market, realizing the expanse of their market. Yeah, it's very it's important to them because for some of these institutions, it's the only way they're going to survive. Yeah. Now, aside from online learning, which we're going to get into in a little bit, Jeff, what are some of the other changes you're seeing now that have either been instigated by COVID-19 or have been accelerated by the pandemic? Well, probably the biggest thing that has been accelerated by the pandemic is the move to digital education or online education in some way, right? So every college starting last March had to become online and remote in some way. And you saw faculty who were resistant to change and resistant to picking up digital education and online education now suddenly embrace it. I don't think we're going back. Uh, it's not that means, it doesn't mean we're not going back to res residential and face-to-face -face education, but I don't think we're going back to where we were before the pandemic. I think technology and online education will play a much larger role. It won't overtake and won't replace residential and face-to-face -face education, but I will now, I now see faculty willing to think, hmm, it's going to be better to teach this course in a hybrid format where my lecture could be recorded. I could send it to my students in advance. They watch it. And then we spend the class time discussing it rather than me wasting my time lecturing at them. I think we're going to start to see much more of that post-COVID. The other thing that it has accelerated is the financial underpinning of higher education, which in some places was pretty weak where colleges, we talked earlier about discounting, where some colleges were constantly discounting their product to a point where they weren't making any money. They were bringing in the same amount of money every year, uh, and they weren't able to invest in new programs and new facilities and new people. And that has now totally collapsed because of COVID, where they haven't been able to get the revenue that they always were able to get to, or they've had to offer bigger discounts to get students in seats. So it has accelerated, I think, a number of colleges that as a result of COVID will either close or merge. Not thousands of them, but definitely into the hundreds. Wow. And you had also alluded to the fact that because of COVID, Jeff, there's less use of SAT type testing, correct? Yeah, we're, we're going to, we're already seeing that more than 1500 colleges and universities for the high school graduating class of 2021 are not requiring SAT scores. I was talking to some enrollment deans recently who were test optional before this, meaning they didn't require test scores. But 75% of the applicant pool would still submit test scores because they're going to take the test anyway, because for example, they were applying to other schools that required the test. They're now seeing the submission rate so far this year down to 25%. Wow. So somewhere from 75% to 25%, when you only have 25% of your applicant pool putting forth test scores, that to me says that part may never come back either. And we may see a future where many fewer students are taking the test because it just won't be required. And of course, that can have an effect on the institutions that provide the tests, right? I remember yes. something in Princeton that did testing back in my day. I don't remember who it was, but they're going to have 
less of a demand for their services as a result of that. Yeah, the testing industry is a huge business. Not only do you have the college board, which uh, owns the SAT, but you have the ACT, the other tests yes. taken by millions of students each year. And then you have an entire industry around that, surrounding that, the test prep industry, which goes from mom and pop shops that have a teacher who does tutoring on the side to big concerns like the Princeton Review, which is a multinational corporation, uh, which provides test prep. So you, you have it from both sides. Uh, and, and what happens to that if testing goes away or goes away in a large way? Yeah. The implications could be very significant. Now, I know that you're not so focused on what's going on outside of the United States simply because it would be an awful lot to track. It's tough enough to track what's going on here and to be an expert. But can you say anything to our audience about whether or not what's happening to colleges and universities, be it in Canada or in Europe or you know, wherever else you want to mention, Jeff, that might be different or the same? Are they going in a lockstep with what's happening here? They are in, in some ways. I mean, cost is a big concern everywhere. And, and the pandemic is having a big economic toll in many countries, which is making it difficult to pay for college whether that's supported by the government in those countries or supported by individuals. So we're starting to see enrollments decline across the globe. Hmm. The other big thing is that before the pandemic, we saw a lot of mobility among students. So students from China would come to the U.S. and Australia and, and Europe and European students would come to the U.S. I mean, people were traveled for college or they traveled to study. I think we're now going to see, at least for the next couple of years, students stay much closer to home not only within their country, but even out of country to study. You know, that's fascinating because one of my daughters at one point was interested in being involved in international studies, study abroad, I guess it was, and actually had a job in a study abroad office after college, thinking that would be a terrific thing to do. But that's probably being uh, impacted by this as well. Hadn't even thought about it that. It is. And, you know, study abroad is incredibly important to institutions as well. Not only do they sponsor many of these programs that students pay for, but when students study abroad, that also opens up places on their campus to enroll more students. And so you get to almost double dip in some ways. Um, and they're not able to do that this year. Yeah. Very good example there. Now, I know that part of what you do, Jeff, is involved with innovation, helping schools innovate. So what I'd like you to do is discuss with us what you think might need to be done differently, I guess, in a more global macro sense. Every school might need to do something differently than another school. And if you could possibly give us a shining example, a glaring example of maybe one or two colleges or universities that are doing innovative things. Yeah. And so I think that the first piece of this is that we, we think of our customer segments in different ways or our student segments in different ways. So some of the most innovative colleges are those institutions that are thinking of their students, not in monolithic terms, right? That they are 18 to 24 year olds who want everything the same or adult students who want everything the same, but are providing them an education in many different ways, whether that's part-time or full-time online or face-to-face -face or hybrid, a combination of the two. And to me, that is going to be the most innovative thing going forward, is that much like we want our grocery, you might want to go to the grocery store one day to pick up our groceries and the next day order from Instacart, the same thing is going to be true of a college education. We may not want the same, you know, not every student wants the same thing, and we want more flexibility. 
And one of the things you've seen coming out of this pandemic is how colleges can be more flexible. We've seen changes to the calendar. We've seen them able to offer uh, education in person, face-to-face and online as well. And that to me, the most innovative thing that could come out of this is how colleges might be able to think differently about how they provide education. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's absolutely critical. Now, online learning has a new potent player known as Zoom University. You've spoken a little bit to this. I'm going to ask you to perhaps give some educated speculation a little further on down the line about what you see as being the long-term impact of COVID-19 on higher education. Looking at it from the perspective of the different players, Jeff, the academic institutions, the students, those who are paying for the college tuitions, which aren't always the students, and any other associated uh, players. We talked about the Princeton Review. (laughs) You're very well versed on this. What might you see now that we've had COVID-19, now that we have COVID-19, it's not behind us yet. Going forward, what changes are these different constituencies likely to feel or see? Well, institutions, to me, this is a real turning point moment for most institutions. This is no different than the late 1990s with the development of the internet, Uh, the late 1960s with uh, the baby boom generation appearing on college campuses and having to serve them. In fact, this may be bigger than both of those things combined. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the pivot that institutions are going to have to make after this. Students as well are going to be expecting different things from their colleges or universities. I think the current students in particular now realize what they value the most and what they value the least. And I think they're going to have more demands on campuses when they get back to colleges. And the same thing with parents. I think parents are really tired of paying ever higher prices for higher education, even before covid And we saw a lot of backlash this spring and fall by colleges who were trying to charge the same amount for online education as they were for in-person education, even though most of the benefits of in-person education were not being provided as a result of of COVID-19. I think you're going to see a lot more pushback on pricing as well by the people who pay for it. Which we heretofore had not seen, right? We hadn't seen it at all. In fact, it was the other way. The colleges were lowering their prices. I mean, they were lowering their prices of their own volition. They, they yep. decided they wanted to lower their prices to become a commodity. Here's where I'd like you to help out students and parents, those who pay for education or attend schools. What would you say over the next several years are some of the most important things that parents and would-be students need to keep in mind when deciding on such things as whether to go to college, where to go to college, and what to study in college? First of all, I I think you should go to college. Uh, I think that almost every job, even after this pandemic, is going to require some sort of post-secondary education. But college doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't have to mean a four-year degree at a residential college. It can mean a two-year degree at a community college. It can mean a certificate. But you need some sort of post-high school education. Now, where to go, I think it needs to have an academic fit, a social fit, and a financial fit. Uh, I think all three fits are really important. An academic fit, obviously, it needs to be kind of in your sweet spot when it comes to your ability to do the work. Does it have the major you want? Uh, And the social fit, is it in a city you want to be in? Does it have the social aspects that you want? The financial fit, I think, is most critical. Can you afford it? How much are you going to have to take out in debt to pay for it? That's that. 
but major, I think is less important for this reason. We are seeing, and we're going to see, I think after this pandemic, a huge change in the workforce. We're going to see entire sectors of the economy disappear. We're going to see entirely new sectors appear. The workforce was already under tremendous change before the pandemic around automation and artificial intelligence. I think we're only going to see that speed up. And for you to pick a major at the age of 18 and think that's going to last for the rest of your life, I think is uh, is a fool's errand because I, I think it's impossible to know really what the jobs 10 years from now are going to be, let alone five years. My feeling is you want to get a, a good foundation of education that helps you be a problem solver, that helps you navigate the ambiguity of the future, uh, that helps you work in teams. Those are the important skill sets that you're going to have to learn in the future. So I would worry less about the major and much more about the skills that you're going to gain and what skills do you need for the job market. Very good tips. Couple of follow-up questions to that. Do you envision either because of the demographics or because of COVID and the cost that have been incurred because of college that we're going to see a reduction in the number of students going to college over the next several years? Uh, we may see a reduction largely because of money. Uh, you know, college is incredibly expensive. We're seeing a downturn in the economy because of COVID. I think there's also a lot of uncertainty. And so particularly for the high school graduating class of 2021 who are applying to college right now, I think they're going to start to say, you know what, I'm not quite sure if we're going to be on campus next fall, so I'll take a year off. Some of those students may never go back, which worries me, right? They're going to be a lost a lost class of, of students. Yeah. Uh, and so overall, I think at least for the next couple of years, we are going to see a downturn in the number of college students at American universities in particular. Would you foresee that, Jeff, bouncing back at some point? Eventually to yeah. a point. But, you know, yeah. one, one thing we were, we were already seeing a demographic cliff coming in 2025, 2026, when we were expecting some of the lowest numbers in high school graduates in, in decades. So we were already going to see that cliff coming and colleges were already preparing for that. In some ways, this has only accelerated that enrollment drop off that we would have seen in a couple of years anyway. Interesting. And again, one other add-on question to that would be, you talked about scholarships and the schools giving everybody a scholarship. What happens to scholarships going forward, Jeff? Is there going to be a diminution of scholarships given out? I think we, we may see some of that. I, I think we're going to see some colleges try to juice up their, their enrollment by looking for students who might not have normally gone to college or going to students in other countries. Again, colleges are a business. They have a, a customer base to maintain every year. So if it's a college of 5,000 students or 10,000 students or 20,000 students, they want to keep those numbers as close to even as possible. In some cases, grow, but at least even. And I think they're going to pull out all the stops in order to get that enrollment. Okay. Now, before we let the listeners know how they can get a hold of you, I'd like to give you a chance to just say a little bit about your latest book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. I mean, you, you touched on it with the focus being on admissions. So tell the audience a little bit more about what is in the book and how they might benefit from it. So Who Gets In and Why is a year inside the college admissions process. It's the year that I spent embedded in the process at three colleges and universities, uh, the University of Washington, Emory University, and Davidson College. But it goes beyond the time I spent inside those offices and saw how they made decisions. I followed a group of high school seniors around who were applying everywhere, including 
three seniors who I uh, focus on particularly in the book. But I also follow what I call the admissions industrial complex. These are all these companies that maintain this $9 billion business that we know as college admissions. Uh, they're testing companies, the rankings, the direct marketing companies. There's all these companies that really have their hand into the admissions process that parents and students never see, but really have a huge influence over college admissions. And, and that's another group that I interweave into the story about the year in college admission. Sounds like uh, good reading, and especially for those who are either personally considering college or who have somebody else like a parent who might be helping to fund their college education. So Jeff, this has been terrific. Good information for our listeners. How can they find out more about that book, your other books? about your podcast, your speaking engagements, consulting. I can't keep up with it. Just, I'm getting tired with all this. So am I. So uh, <laughs> I, um, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on. Sure. Uh, thanks for everybody's interest in the book. They could buy it at a local bookseller or uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. Uh, they could find me at jeffsalingo.com. S as in Sam, E-L-I-N-G-O, jeffsalingo.com. Yes. Uh, where they can find out about the podcast and other things, including some of my media appearances for this book. But people find out about books from friends and people they trust. So if they read the book, my only request is tell others about it. Yeah, and I agree with that as far as word of mouth. But I also want to ask you to talk about the podcast briefly. What do you cover? So I host a podcast with Michael Horn called The Future You. And, and really what I, we look at is innovation and change in higher education, whether it's because of the pandemic, because of finances, because of students, whatever it might be. We look at the future of the university through the eyes, not only of colleges and universities, but also of the consumers who are in the midst of, of the search or in the midst of college and paying for college. And it's called Future You, and we're in season four now. It's one of my favorite things and, and really excited if you can take a listen. Yes. I should also ask you, since that's what your focus is, is there a university or two you would just say, boy, they're really doing great stuff? I do some consulting work. Uh, I'm a special advisor at Arizona State University, which has been named, I think, five years in a row as the most innovative college and university in the country. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, Georgia State University, a lot of great colleges out there. I mean, the thing to remember, I think, when you're looking for a college is there are thousands of good colleges out there. It's not just the 10 you hear about all the time. And I think it's really important when you're on the college search to be thinking more broadly than I think too often we think about higher education. Yeah. And you know, Jeff, when I was listening to you rattle off those names, I noticed that some of them were lesser known. They're more yep. obscure, which illustrates your point there. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the program. Looking forward. It's been great to have you, Jeff. I wish you nothing but the best of continued success with the book, the podcast, anything else you're involved in. I think it's a wonderful niche to focus on. And I commend you again for spotting that early on. Take care. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learn something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. 
This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward. <laughs>